School's back and the family's back. You look good, family. I'm going to pray. I invite you to pray with me. We'll turn to the Holy One who was and is before and after time, the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing but gives everything, the one who's given us Christ and his word. Let's turn to him. Lord, thank you that by your grace we could stand in the holy of holies, and we don't got to take off our shoes. Thank you that you are about the hearts of men, and you circumcise the hearts of men, and you prepare us, and you do work. This is your work. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everyone you brought here this morning. We wait on you. Trust you. Speak, oh God. Speak to your people. Send your spirit. We need you. And we pray by faith in Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, this month here, Marks um, my four my four year anniversary at this church. <clears throat> Great clapping as always. So many things have happened. I came in August of 2019, and I remember I was in Philly, living up in Allentown with my wife and my one son at the time. One of our elders, Creighton Langford, called me. Wasn't expecting the call, uh, maybe just a little bit. And he called me. He asked me if I was interested in the job, and I'm from north, the north. And so to no surprise, I just kind of shot it straight and said no. And uh, Creighton's a good talker. And he said, well, before you say no, just hear me out here. I said, okay. And he gave me the pitch. And he said, why don't you just come? And I said, okay, I'll just come just as long as you know, I'm probably not going to take the job. He said, that's okay, just come. I came. Visited on a Sunday morning, do what any typical visitor does, comes late, leaves early, sits in the back row. Nobody knew I was there. The interim pastor was preaching. I enjoyed worship. Christ was there. But I left, not really feeling much. After the church service, I met with the elders. We had some more conversations. I got on the plane, went home, began to pray. And for some reason, um, when I began to pray, my heart began to become more open about taking this job. It made no sense. Uh, About maybe three or four weeks later, Creighton called again. He said, we want you to come back down again. And uh, I was still pretty confident I wasn't going to take the job. But I came. He's the realtor. He helped us check out some houses. I met with the elder again, the elders again. And then the church organized this little team, this little group of people to take me out to eat to 1910. It's good. Uh, The 1910 burger is what I had. 
And it was there at the meeting where it happened, and I promise you it wasn't the cheeseburger. Um, actually, it was the people. The people are what got me. And that little team from the small church on the corner who'd been through the thick, who expressed to me um, how they haven't given up on hope in God and how they longed for a pastor to come and how they still believe that God can produce something great from Parkview Church. Um, hard story. Great people. A family holding on to faith in God to produce something that otherwise, apart from supernatural work, would be impossible to produce. Hear what I said? And I took the job, and after I came down here, 29 years old, never a lead, a lead pastor before, moved my family across the country, I took the job, probably largely in part with ignorance, but by grace, God's grace, he let me do that. I came down here, and what I realized was that this church story of 38 years was way bigger than me, and that I can never save it. And... Uh, Stepping into a story of church school separation and pastors over the course of the years who left with different church cultures and elders leaving and families leaving and people leaving. The church had seen better days. And what's typically normal of a new pastor when he comes to the church, it grows because the church romanticizes what that man would be that happened. But then month seven hit, and the Lord allowed a global pandemic. And uh, there we were back to ground zero. And uh, it, since then, it's been, it's been a long, hard journey, a steady two and a half, almost three years of faith and fruitfulness. But Parkview Church, look where we're at. Last uh, ministry semester in the spring, we, we finished with an average church attendance of 150 we had over 250 people at our Easter service. Our core leadership team is growing and maturing in the gospel. Last year, we had near 10 baptisms. Non-Christians have become Christians. Membership last year exploded. Untypical numbers seen in presbytery. Disciples have been made. The mortgage has been paid off. What started with one and a half staff are soon to become, by God's grace, at the end of this month, seven people on staff. We're a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church that has a bilingual service and a thriving children's ministry. And um, I surround myself with pastors, and many times the initial question from the pastors is, how did you do it? What strategy did you use? I didn't do it. I didn't have a strategy. There was no strategy. How then did it happen? God and his word is how it happened. For what sake? For the sake of the glory of his name. He loves his church. Are you surprised? That the Lord, by the preaching of his word, brings to life dead bones. 
through the means of grace, he revitalizes his people because he, at the core of his being, is a revitalizing God. Um, to be honest with you, the rumor on the street was that we weren't going to make it. If I could just shoot it straight. But there are other things happening. But God saw this family, this church, and the story, and he said, redeemable. He said, my people. He said, no one's too old no one's too traditional. No one's too out of touch. No one's too gray. No one's too small in my kingdom for me to use. When they commit themselves to me in my word, I blow the Holy Spirit and revitalize bones. This is what God does all throughout the Bible. He takes his people, by grace calls them to himself, after a little while of walking with him, they wander from his ways and find themselves in a hard place. And over and over in the scriptures, what does God do to show his glory for the fame of his name? He saves them, and oftentimes that salvation is done through miracles, signs, and wonders. In over four years, he has done this. He's worked out salvation and borne fruit of a growing, healthy church for the sake and name of Jesus Christ and the good of you, his people. I'm really thankful this morning to announce that after four years, we're starting a new series. It's called Discovering Parkview Church. If you could put that up on the screens, that'd be great. There it is. There's our new church logo. I'm gonna hopefully, over the next month, explore with you what I and the elders believe Parkview Church is where we believe the Lord is taking us, and how we believe the Lord is going to get us there. The buzzwords for those things are mission, vision, and values. I'm going to explain more of these things as the series goes on. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 is in the left-hand side of the Bible in the Old Testament after the first five books. I've titled this sermon this morning, the story of Parkview Church and the mighty and merciful God. Babe, could you grab that tissue for me? The story of Parkview Church and the mighty and merciful God. I'd like to show you this morning, thank you, three points. Excuse me. It's gross. Three things, three points. And here they are. Number one, we must remember the story. Number two, we must fear and serve God. And number three, we must cling to the only one who saves. Remember the story, fear and serve God. There is only one who saves. We're going to move right now to point number one, and I'd like to elaborate on this first point, which is remember the story. It's kind of a challenging thing to, to pick up in a random chapter of a book that we haven't studied before together as a church. But uh, usually, if you want to know about a book and aren't able to read the entire thing, if you're a reader, you'll know that the second best option is to turn open to the back cover of that book or the last chapter and read the ending. And so here we are in Joshua chapter 24, which is the, the final chapter in the book. And what Joshua is doing here is taking God's people, Israel, through the narrative of their existence. To summarize it, 
but also to share and remind them of the greater and much larger story of God and his people since the beginning before their time. Joshua here is God's appointed leader, the man whom God chose after Moses to take Israel into the promised land. The promised land is Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the place of blessing and flourishing. The place that all throughout the Old Testament, God's people have been waiting to inherit and receive. And so this is what's happening here in this context as we open up to this chapter. Joshua takes the people of Israel as he's standing on the plains of Moab, overlooking the promised land. He gathers all the people, all their leaders, the elders, the overseers. He brings them into the presence of God, and he says, Israel, God's people, hear the Lord speak. Before we move into the promised land, there are some things you must remember and hear. And then we pick up in our text. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, God speaking, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave to him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I said, I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with, with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought to you the land of the Amorites, whom you lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent, his, he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This morning, as we as a church approach this text, the one thing I do not want to do is pretend that we're Israel. We are certainly not Israel. There are certain distinctions and disconnects from this text to us. But what I'd like to do is point out the connection, and that is this, that by and through Jesus Christ in every way, we are too, just like Israel, God's people. And also, the God of this text is in every way the same God that we believe in and serve today. 
before we move into this new season here at our church, it is right for us to consider what God is asking Israel to consider here, which is what? Our story. So we can remember everything that God has done. And I emphasize what God has done because this is the very thing that God in this text wants Israel to notice, what he has done to emphasize his own self, his own work, all the ways and times without number that he showed up for them apart from them doing nothing to rescue, save, deliver, defend, and keep them. 18 times in these 13 verses, God repeats the word, I. I took your father, Abraham. I gave him Isaac. I gave Jacob. I gave Esau. I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. I brought your fathers out. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. I brought you out of the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. Balaam cursed you, but I would not listen to him. I delivered you out of his hand. All the ites, Amorites, Parasites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, all of them, Girgashites, I gave them into your hand. I drove them out. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards, that is fruit trees, luxurious eatings, and you feast on olive orchards, which is the highest level of feasting. And these are the things that you did not plant. You can't avoid God's action in this text. Parkview Church, 38 years of a story to bring us up to this point, and the point that I'm making to you this morning is that it has only ever been God. I came here, and there hadn't been a pastor for three years. Outside of my one son, there were only three children in the ministry. On day one, no youth minister. After month three, one elder. A global pandemic hit. According to seminary statistics, we should have closed up shop. And not just when I came, but do you remember the years leading up? For those of you who know the story, how people left in droves by the masses because they believed nothing good was going to come. This church was like Israel in verse 7, who lived in the wilderness a long time. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, to the means of grace, that is word, sacrament, prayer, Apostles' teaching and fellowship poured out his Holy Spirit through his Son to work signs, miracles, and wonders. When everyone counted us out, when everyone thought the days were over, when we offered ourselves as a church merge and got rejected, God was not rejecting his people, but had a different plan. His plan was this, to bring us low, so we could be humbled, cry out for God, and in his good grace, elevate us to the position of worship because of only what he has done. We must not forget the story. We must not pretend this wasn't the story. 
that sin happened here. That there were trials and hard moments to lead us up to this, to know that we are not self-made, but God-made. And our lives in this church are not a product of our own hands, our own wisdom, but God's. You know what God said? I'm the revitalizer. I'm the strategy. The first church in the book of Acts was birthed through prayer. It was materialized. The first ministry was materialized by an ordinary, imperfect man who knew grace, preaching and teaching the word, Peter. You want to know what the strategy is? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you hear the last sentence? Who did it? The Lord. Through the ordinary means of grace, the Lord grew the church through preaching and teaching and fellowship and the things that many other places don't consider as powerful. The Lord said, I am powerful, and do you want to see my power displayed? Do this. If you've been here for a while, I'm asking you please to remember the story. Please tell the story. Tell the story. It happened. As we're in this chapter, there's many more chapters coming. If you're new here, if this is what you're stepping into, not a type of people who are better than anyone else, but a type of people who by God's sovereign grace and mercy has chosen to be merciful to you. So join us in worshiping our merciful God. Do you remember what Nehemiah 6 said? Remember Nehemiah? He was the man that God commissioned to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after the city got destroyed. Remember that? And after he uh, rebuilt the walls, he looked back over the work, and do you remember what he said? This work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah knew who rebuilt those walls. I just want to tell you, as, as straightforward as I can, I didn't do it. The elders didn't do it. The deacons didn't do it. No one brought all these new people here to our church. Can you recognize that all of them came by their own, by their own uh, you know, drawing? 240 times in the Old Testament and 112 times in the New, God commands his people to remember. Why? Because when God's people remember his covenant faithfulness and mercy, they are enabled to take hope and confidence in their future with Christ-centered faith. 
So what I'm saying to you is God has not failed us, and knowing that he has not failed us, the gospel hope for this church is that he will never fail us because we love and are loved by the Son. I ask you, as we close this first point, in a point of application, as you think about your own story, what has God done for you? How has he shown up for you when you thought it was all over? When you considered death, when you were drawn low to despair and were depressed and thought there was no way out, what did God do for you? (laughs) Some of you are in the season right now. I'm asking you to remember the covenant-keeping God and how he's been gracious. Through Christ, you can know he won't stop. Psalm chapter 121, for you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time and forevermore. Your story is part of the much greater story that God is working out in history, his redemptive plan of salvation and Because of Jesus Christ, you could take hope in God for you and your story. He who called you will always be faithful. He will not leave you. He has kept all of his word in Christ. God's the prize. Amen? That was point number one. We must remember the story. I'd like to show you now how we must fear and serve God. In the next small section of this text, if you look there in verses 14 through 15, the train of thought that flows from Joshua to the people after hearing God's word is this. Since God has been gracious, verse 14, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And uh, if you look in the second part of the verse, he goes on to say, put away false gods, a.k.a. sin. In other words, consider not only what I have done, but consider how through these things, who I am. And then after considering who I am, what I want you to do, my people Israel, is choose for yourself who will you live for and serve. Will you live for the world and serve yourself, or will you live for me and serve me? And so now we've transitioned into this second point, and what I want to show you is that God is gracious and faithful to his people for this one reason, so that we with fear and trembling before the mighty and holy God would serve and obey him. And I know that sounds harsh. I I hope it doesn't sound like the, the brimstone preacher on the corner. But this is the reason why the first point came first, to show us that grace is given First, and it is grace that produces obedience. It is the character of God and knowing just how good he is to call us to himself freely apart from anything that we ever did and that produces the fuel for obedience. If you look there in verse 2b, there's a microcosm of the gospel. It says that Israel's forefathers lived in pagan lands and served other gods. 
but it shows how out of God's own free choosing, apart from anything Abraham ever did, God chose to bless him and make him great. This is what enables us to serve and obey God authentically. God's gracious initiative. But here's what I believe happens along the way. Because grace is, grace is preached too narrowly and love is often superficial, what we forget at the core in all of this is that our God is holy. So I'm going to say something strong here, but I want you to stay with me. I'm going to explain. And this is what it is. Our God is a terrible God. And what I mean by that, or mean by terrible, is that he is so holy and so infinitely great that the scriptures say that the mountains melt like wax before him. Do you remember what God's people Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses, their leader, went up to receive the Ten Commandments and the pillar and smoke and cloud and fire descended on top of the mountain and, the, and it all trembled? They were shaking in their boots and they didn't even see God's face. They just saw his creation. And what did they say to Moses? Moses, please don't let God speak to us. You speak to us because if he speaks to us, we will die. Never mind seeing his face, even just hearing his word, we'll die. This is how unapproachable and holy our God is. The scriptures say that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means the God of Mount Sinai is still the God that we worship and serve today. But then we're led to the new covenant to behold the face of God, which Colossians says is found in Jesus Christ. And how did that holy and terrible God reveal himself? With humility, selfless service, and love, as he became a man, lived a sinless life, and laid down his life for his sinful people so they can be freely saved. This is why we love and serve our terrible and merciful God. And the train of thought which flows from this text after there's a commandment of fear is obedience. And obedience, if I could just be honest, like I said last week, is one of the greatest, is one of the things in the Christian faith of greatest burden. That's not right, but it's what ends up happening. Why? Because in religion, that is apart from God, when obedience is considered the end goal, without God, it's a heavy yoke that does not reward when we obey and serve God without the purpose of getting God and beholding who he is or relating to or enjoying his person, religion will strip you from joy and become a heavy yoke. Rules hurt. Rules without God are not Christianity. But we become idol-making factories and we lose sight of God and so we hear commandments like this to obey and obedience becomes the end goal and that's why so many people seek to obey God but have no joy because God is not their end goal but that obedience is. Satan deceived them to put all their hope and faith in the works of their own hands 
But God gives obedience to his people in the scripture so they can have him and behold his glory and his holiness. This is why we obey, to know and enjoy the person of God. That's the good news of the gospel in light of obedience and religion, that you and I through these things can have God as the me, as, 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 as works as the means to an end, the end being God. That's for one type of people here in this congregation right now, but I'd like to talk to the second, and the second is this. Um, those who actually don't care much about obedience or, um, or serving God, and who, in the name of God is love, and the name of God is gracious, sit back and do nothing about the faith. And um, excuse ungodly life and ungodly living and the lack of spiritual discipline just by saying God is loving and gracious. Watch whatever they want because God is love. Listen to whatever they want because God is love. Cut corners at work because God is love. Have one extra drink because God is love. But in this definition of love, which is no definition of love at all, what at the core is void is God is holy. God is holy. If this is you, dear friend, I say, as gentle as I can with truth, you're in a dangerous place. I beg of you to wake up. You're in a potentially fatal place. God is love. Without God is holy. Is no love at all. It is fatal. Not too long ago, this young man texted me. Uh, he asked me to come to my office. He arrived, sat with me, and he told me about this relationship that he was in that was ungodly. This young man was filled by the Holy Spirit and was a Christian. I listened to his story, and after hearing about the relationship, I, with as much gentleness and truth as I could, told him that he should get out. And you know what he said to me? I already know that. He said, Pastor James, sometimes when I'm with my girlfriend, the spirit inside of me is so loud speaking that it's almost like he's screaming to me saying that I want you. And so um, we prayed together for God's spirit to be given that he would have enough um, strength to make the choice. I wasn't sure how the meeting was going to turn out, if he would do it or not. But after the meeting was over, about 30 minutes later, he called me weeping, gasping for breath, literally. And he said, I did it. And he didn't ask to come back to my office. He said, I'm coming back to your office. I need to be with you. And I went outside and I waited for him and I watched him get out of the car and he could barely walk. And you want to know what I saw? the power of God. Displayed in a young man counting the cost for Christ to live holy despite his feelings or emotions or desires or passions and said, God is worth it. For the sake of God, I choose Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Do you fear and serve the Lord? Hear the word of God. 
but to this one I will look. To he or she who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Parfit Church, the reason why we fear and serve God authentically is because Christ, who is God himself, has brought us into the holies of holies. The place in which we stand is before none other than the infinite creator God himself. Amen. I'd like to finish our time this morning by showing you lastly the only one who saves. We're taking a breather. In the last big section of this text, in um, verses 16 through 28, after hearing the words of um, God and Joshua's commands, what the people end up pretty much doing with a whole bunch of gumption and passion bubbling up inside of them is basically say to Joshua, amen, Joshua, it is right to serve and obey God. And so we will. And Joshua, if you look there, says those famous words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people respond and say, us too, Josh. Verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord. Verse 18, after all that he has done, we will serve him. And you think after Joshua heard this, he would say, wow, great, you nailed it, you have chosen well. But to the surprise, look what he says in verse 19. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. What? You ready for something that that will really blow your mind? Verse 20, he will not Forgive your sins or transgressions. For if you forsake him, he'll consume you. And the people say to him in verse 21, we won't forsake him. We are our own witnesses. And this is the verse right here which helps us to make sense of it all. What is it? It's not so much in Israel's desire to serve and obey God, for here they're being authentic, but rather it's in their misunderstanding of this holy call to holy living in light of this holy God. Joshua here is saying to Israel, you don't get what I'm talking about and who I'm talking about. I'm talking about holiness in front of the Holy One. And they thought they understood. And so they said, we're going to obey. But guess what happens in the very next books of, of the Bible? The very next book. The people fall out of faithfulness, find themselves in a bad place. Why? Because this is the fallen condition of the human heart hot and on fire for God one day and ice cold the next. In the morning, waking up passionate and loving Christ and by noon, heartless and cold. We're like the disciples in the garden who after Jesus said, you're going to fall away, say, no way, Lord, not me. We're going to stick with it to the end. But here's the problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. The problem with Israel here in this picture, and even with us, is that we have an inability to stay faithful to God because of our sin nature. And so the incorrect response is turning to ourselves and promising to try harder and do better. It is impossible. We're talking about the holy God and the standard of a holy life. 
Do you want to know what Israel should have done here in this text after Joshua says, you have idols, put them away and turn to the holy God? They should have done what they did in verse 7 while they were in the wilderness and cried out for God to have mercy. Because that's what God delights in. The one who says, I can't. I want you. I want to live right. I want you, the good God. But if I'm honest with myself, I haven't lived like it. And really, I am no match for my sin. I need you, God, to forgive me with mercy. And the good news of the gospel is that this is exactly what he does. Here in this text, we have a picture of the old covenant. The relationship, the promised relationship between God and his people. In those terms, God had to be faithful. He always was, but Israel never was throughout the Old Testament. That's why there's that constant cycle of repentance, forgiveness, sin, judgment over and over again. But what is the good news of the new covenant found in the New Testament? That God becomes a man, humbled himself, and takes the place of his people lives a sinless life, dies a sinful death, and extends the benefits of God's mercy through his perfect work. That's the beauty of the new covenant. There is one who is righteous. It is the son of God. And for those who look to him and ask for mercy, God is merciful. Christ is how God has been faithful to his people. Christ is why we fear and serve him. Christ is our hope and assurance that we will be blessed now and forevermore. Parkview Church, we're not going to nail it as a church. We're not going to nail mission, vision, values, mercy, holy living perfectly. But there is one who has, and he, by his blood, covers this church. He is our hope and assurance. I'll finish by reading to you. Room. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it were slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands times ten. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus Christ is the Savior of heaven and us, his people. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. God, thank you that you would see us in all of our sin and long to extend mercy. No one's worthy. Nobody could stand. Everyone's imperfect, but you sent the perfect one. Oh God, prepare our hearts as we prepare to have communion. You're the only one who facilitates the supper. So bless us, Lord.